Part 2 The fifth commandment states that thou shalt not kill. However, the mysterious will of God inspires all creation with the need to evolve. This urge is to be seen in the beautiful expressions of life in all its diversity. Thus creation is an outward and visible proof of the presence of the divine. And we must recognize in this commandment that what God has created is not for humanity to destroy, for such acts of destruction are a contradiction to our life's purpose. This notion, surprisingly, is not at variance with the laws of nature's kingdom, wherein we see the cycle of life based upon the greater eating the lesser. That humanity has been blessed with an intelligence, so obviously different from the rest of other creatures on this planet, coupled with the fact of being gifted with a moral sense that conditions behaviour, clearly demonstrates that it has been set apart for a higher purpose. This purpose, clearly outlined in the scriptures, is to be a steward, a role that requires us to care for and look after the creatures of this world and not as many believe to prey upon them. Over the past few centuries, mankind has entered a very dangerous phase in its development. Much of the technology used is based upon destruction. The energy used by humanity is based in the main upon the destruction of the atom and the burning of fossil fuels. Food production is more often than not based upon the mass destruction of animal life, and agricultural technology frequently involves destroying all vegetable, insect and animal life that in any way interferes with production. Life forms at every level are used in tests of destruction in the development of chemicals whose purpose varies from cosmetics and medicine to food and warfare. Such an approach is clearly detrimental to the well-being of this world. The wisdom within this commandment requires us to learn if we live by the sword, then we will die by the sword. Within the soul exists the urge to destroy, as a negative expression of the survival instinct. This destructive inclination must be brought under control, a difficult thing to accomplish without some understanding of its nature and roots. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, speaking about this issue, states, By wrath, by lust, and by avarice is the Atman hidden. St. Paul tells us that we have a celestial body, as well as a terrestrial body, which means that we are part animal and as such must conform to nature's laws and part spiritual, sharing in the substance of the divine. The soul's evolution through nature is then different from that of the body, which develops according to the prevailing conditions in the world. Experience teaches the soul that it must rise above the limitations of this earthly realm, to the point where it can be consciously guided by divine inspiration, rather than remaining subject to the rule of instinct. But the instincts are very powerful. Few can say that they have transcended their influence. The soul, dominated and conditioned by the chemistry of nature, assumes such conditioning to be the true nature of existence. Consequently, through identification with this lower nature, the soul is ever ready to support and defend it as part of itself. Thus the passion of anger is assumed to be justifiable when the situation demands it. Anger may be justifiable, but generally 
it is all too often used to assert one's will in matters where one has little or no right, or to give vent to emotions that are difficult to articulate. Under such circumstances, aggression negates reason and generates fear. The ultimate expression of uncontrolled anger is murder, which is the unjust killing of a fellow being. The consequences of such an act generates conflict which frequently leads to social and indeed personal destruction. What ensues from such an outrage can be revenge, riot, war, famine, drought and poverty, to name but a few of the negative expressions of anger. Whereas the control of aggression leads to a well-ordered society in which reason and justice, compassion and trust prevail. The wisdom of this commandment, then, teaches us that we should not be blindly led by our passions, and the recognition of this is an important step in our evolution. The sixth commandment states, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is the act of two people becoming carnally involved with each other, whilst one or both are otherwise married. According to civil law, marriage is a legally binding contract between man and woman, and the breaking of the contract has consequences. According to the Church, marriage is a sacrament, and as such is binding for life. A sacrament is an outward and visible expression of the grace of God, the conferring of which is permanent. Consequently, the act of adultery is the breaking of a sacred vow made before God. Such a vow is not to be treated lightly. The implications are serious on a physical, psychological and spiritual level. We have a sophisticated system of components that are fundamental to the development and evolution of organic life. These components are called genes. The interaction of genetic material is volatile. Amongst humans, certain genetic families react badly with each other and generate incredible deformities and weaknesses. It has long been known that the intermarriage of close relatives is susceptible to such variables. Consequently, the formal regulation of mating couples was, and indeed still is, of vital importance if the community or race is to remain healthy. The means by which such controls was previously maintained was through the strict regulation of marriage. Thus, for thousands of years, genetic families evolved slowly, carefully, and in the majority of cases successfully. The global increase of population since 1900 and the massive increase in couples divorcing over the same period has created a situation wherein it is quite impossible without medical assistance to predict safe genetic development. Consequently, it has become increasingly more difficult to recognize the potential for deformity. That this argument can be taken too far is accepted. Nevertheless, the situation is not improved by assuming more liberal views concerning the serious act of generation. On psychological terms, the situation is equally chaotic when the emotional factors involved in marriage are taken less seriously than the sacrament demands. For most people, emotional growth and maturation within this state is often awkward and painful. No one individual can truly say that they were born mature enough to have no need for development. Mistakes in marital relationships are frequent. 
and if such mistakes are to be threatened with divorce whenever they might occur, then a rigid and sterile etiquette develops in place of mutual trust and tolerance. Under such conditions, partners live in an atmosphere of anxiety and fear, rather than one of love. Separation leads frequently to a disturbed psyche which is forever on the defensive or bent upon seeking emotional compensation without commitment, and family life often becomes an emotional battlefield, wherein unhealthy attitudes develop in the offspring, leading ultimately to an emotionally sick society. Jesus Christ taught that adultery exists in two forms. The first is obviously the physical act itself, but just as important is the internal lusting or imagining of carnal knowledge with another. That anyone should do or want to do such a thing indicates a lack of understanding and sensitivity. The fulfilment of such a need is far outweighed by the damage done within the families concerned. The emotional turmoil and frequent domestic hardships incurred through the resultant separation and divorces and the problems inflicted upon any children involved clearly demonstrates the wisdom of this commandment. The metaphysics underlying this commandment are profound. Respect for life is generated by the wholesomeness of the attitude we have towards the masculine and feminine natures of our being. Adultery destroys any harmony that we may have attained. It indicates a soul who is seeking emotional carnal gratification and has yet to realize the divine aspect of their being. The principle underlying marriage is an outward attraction of inner opposites. The male sees in the female the reflection of his feminine nature, first brought to consciousness by his experience of his mother. And the female sees in the male the reflection of her masculine nature, first brought to consciousness by her experience of her father. When either partner commits adultery, they reject their mate and in doing so reject their own inner nature. The result is inner turmoil, guilt and aggression, a situation that is in conflict with divine will, especially when the marriage has been solemnized sacramentally. Therefore let those who consciously tread the spiritual path ask themselves how can the celestial marriage come to pass when the masculine and feminine nature of the aspirant is in conflict. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not steal. In most civilizations, the principle of ownership has long been recognized and accepted. Over the course of history, laws have evolved governing the details and ethics of possession. The act of taking what in the eyes of society does not belong to us is called theft or stealing. Such an act has social repercussions and invokes divine justice. As far as humanity is concerned, divine justice is based upon the principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if we would have others respect our person and our rights to live with dignity, then we should treat them in a like manner. For like attracts like. Indeed, every cause has its effect. To the wise, every thought, decision and action has a like reaction. Consequently, theft is as detrimental to the thief as it is to the victim. However, such noble behaviour is not commonplace, demanding as it does firm control over our appetites and emotions. 
When such control is successfully applied, it forms part of the bedrock of a healthy community. Where such control ceases to exist, cooperation fails and the barbaric rule of might prevails. Under such conditions, people live in fear and suspicion, which is the very antithesis of the human spirit. This should be borne in mind when contemplating this commandment, which teaches us that we must earn by honest labour that which we may call our own. The Christ taught us that unless we renounce the world, we shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Bhagavad Gita informs us that by anger, by lust and by avarice is the Atman hidden. The same message is drawn from both teachings. By our attachment to the things of the world, we are blinded to the reality of the indwelling Christ. Religion exists, that it does so, is sufficient to justify its claims, which are as old as humanity itself. The existence of God, the existence of the soul, its divine nature and purpose, and the means of attaining freedom from the shackles of this world. These, among other things, are the essential teachings of most religions. Christ instructed us to love one another, but he also taught us that we must die to the world if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless our love of the divine is greater than our love of the things of the world, we will never be able to renounce the world. There is no contradiction here. To love one another is to allow each of our fellows the just rewards of their labours. But if you are continually at odds with your fellows by taking that which society deems to be rightfully theirs, how can you truly say that you love them? The love of the divine is the love of life itself. This must include all people, for they are divine by right of the very life that they are. If you would love the divine, then you must seek to assist your fellows, not hinder or offend them through greed or insensitivity. The soul's fundamental purpose in life is to evolve into the full consciousness of the divine. To attain this exalted state of being, the soul must become at one with the indwelling Christ. This is only possible when you have risen above the influence of the instinct of nature. The power to do this is called love, and the first step towards understanding love is in establishing harmony with our fellows. Such love acts as a catalyst within the psyche that engenders a love of all life. Only then are we ready to enter the inner temple of the soul and commune with the divine essence, life itself. The Eighth Commandment states, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbour. To bear false witness is to lie. To bear false witness against your neighbour is to lie about the activities, attitudes, beliefs and conditions of another person. The most common form of bearing false witness is in the passing on of hearsay about the affairs of another person without having any real knowledge of the matter. And even if one were privy to the truth, idle chatter about the affairs of another is a very questionable practice. The Christ taught us that it is not what goes into the mouth which defiles, but that which comes out of it. That which comes out of the mouth is speech, and that which defiles is obviously not truth, but falsehood. Spreading falsehood is through the telling of lies. Invariably, the purpose of lying 
is to seek unfair advantage over another. This may be merely exaggerating one's abilities or reporting the nature of circumstances in which we find ourselves so that we may be seen in a more favourable light. Or it may be malicious criticism of another person for revenge, profit or status. Whatever the reason to tell lies about another person is to undermine their integrity and to mislead the recipient of the lie. False witness is then fundamentally destructive to all the parties involved. It breeds animosity and suspicion and is a direct contradiction of the commandment given to us by Christ, love ye one another. The true act of love is the recognition and respect of the divine element within. This divine element is found within the heart of all creatures. Consequently, it is not possible to love one another if we bear false witness. We have been taught that elevating oneself at the expense of another is wrong. It is wrong for two reasons. Firstly, the act of self-elevation, be it conscious or otherwise, is an act of egoism which only serves to strengthen the rule of the first Adam. Secondly, to do so at another's expense is detrimental to the well-being of our fellows and by extension is detrimental to the community. What is required from us is that we assist one another towards maturity. This can only be accomplished by our adherence to the truth and in fair dealings with our fellows, a difficult thing to do when we are full of self-esteem. The wisdom of this commandment consists in true humility, which is simply putting the awareness of self into perspective. In doing so, we learn that in human society, everyone is at the mercy of the good or evil intentions of another. That a person may have wronged does not justify our criticism, nor does it merit using the failings of another for our own ends. After all, who is qualified to pass judgment upon another? Which is what we do when we voice our opinions about the acts or qualities of another person. Do we criticize an infant for its inability to walk or handle its food with the same dexterity as an adult? No, we do not. Neither then should we criticize those who have yet to master situations that we may have learnt with greater ease and opportunity. If truth is the affirmation of being, then lying is the distortion of being. Such an act is, then, a negative expression of the will and is essentially demonic. If we are to grow spiritually, we must recognize this and endeavor to establish our being in truth. In bringing truth into our lives, we bring the illuminating light of understanding, which illuminates superstition and clears away misconceptions and frees the soul from the dominion of the instinct of nature. For truth to be established in the life of the soul, some humility is essential. This commandment leads us to consider others as we would be considered, and to treat others as we would be treated, thereby putting the notion of self into a balanced perspective, which induces true humility and gives life to the teaching given by Jesus Christ, the truth shall make you free. The last commandments state, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife, nor shalt thou covet thy neighbour's goods. The emphasis in both commandments lies upon the word covet, 
which means to desire eagerly. The word desire has many connotations, but essentially they are all to do with the satisfaction of appetite. The most fundamental of all desires is for the experience of life itself, and by this desire the soul is held entranced, like a child, fascinated by the glitter and colour of life's experiences. Fooled by these experiences, the soul falls into the delusion of believing them to be of itself. Thus experience becomes my experience. An attachment that brings upon the soul the pleasures and the pain engendered by its involvement. Unfortunately, as the wise have discovered, such joy that the world has to offer soon loses its charm. As youth and health turn to age and infirmity, and the appetites of youth no longer satisfy the palate of old age. In many cases, the soul learns that there is more to life than the exercise of the senses and the gratification of appetites. It could be argued that happiness is the fundamental objective of the soul, which is at first sought for in the world of the senses. But experience soon teaches otherwise. True happiness can only be found in the knowledge and experience of that which is not subject to the transient conditions of the sensual world, by which I mean the divine. The soul straddles two worlds, the spiritual world wherein is found the true and essential nature of being, and the physical world in which is found a continuous process of change and alteration. In this ephemeral world, the soul experiences diversity, and a fragmentation of consciousness. For the soul to become aware of its divine nature, it must first give up all attachment to the things of the world. This is only possible when the soul's love of the divine is greater than its love of the world of the senses. Only then can it gravitate towards unity instead of being continually drawn to the pleasures of the world. When the soul's love of the sensual world is greater than its love of the spiritual world, then it is unable to discriminate between the real and the illusionary. It becomes a slave to its own appetite for experience and unwittingly binds itself to the body. The appetites of the body are in themselves quite natural and are fundamentally concerned with the needs of the flesh, such as food, sex, comfort, power, etc., the inevitable consequence of the soul's obsession with the things of the flesh is that its quality of experience becomes progressively more bestial. Reason is subject to the cravings of appetite and the will becomes fixed upon satisfaction. The master becomes a servant and the servant becomes the instinctive tyrant. The wisdom of these commandments teaches the soul that it should recognize the nature of appetite and learn to control it. Thus, by recognizing the inherent limitation of appetite's many expressions, the soul learns to apply reason in defining and understanding them and to exercise the will in controlling them. The desire to satisfy an appetite, taken to the extreme, ungoverned by sound reason and a firm will, must inevitably transgress the law, which has evolved over countless generations laws which enable people to live and work together in harmony. Interfering for selfish motives with the stability of other people's lives breeds negative emotions and in trespassing upon another's rights 
we generate discord and mistrust. What then is our purpose in life, if it is not to fulfill the commandments given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbour as thyself, which is the summarisation of the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Metaphysically, the commandments teach love, yes, love of the divine and love for life itself. It teaches love of ourselves and love for one another. How can we hope to enter the kingdom of heaven if we continue to offend our fellows in satisfying our desires? What real gain is there in taking another's mate or possessions? It is much better and wiser to fulfil our destiny by cooperating with our fellows. In this way do we learn the essential nature of love and in doing so become as God intended from the beginning, truly made in God's image. Thank you.